Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Sign up for a free trial membership at audibletrial.com forward slash queens. And better yet, by doing so, you'll be showing your support for the Queens of England podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 19, Isabella of France, the first she-wolf. At the start of the last episode, we had a triumphant Edward and Dispenser lording it over a kingdom which had just suffered through yet another war. By the end, Edward was in chains, Dispenser was executed, and it was Isabella who was triumphant along with her lover Mortimer. But by the end of this episode, Isabella would have been sidelined and Mortimer himself executed. To quote the saying from Battlestar Galactica, all of this has happened before, and all this will happen again. England was in a vicious cycle of violence and repression, and now her so-called saviour Isabella was going to follow the road trodden by her husband and his favourites. This was the first time that a king had been overthrown since Empress Matilda overthrew King Stephen, but of course that was only for about six months. She had left the king alive, knowing full well that killing the anointed king would be a one-way ticket to losing any legitimacy she had gained. But keeping the king alive made him a constant source of headaches, and of course led to the downfall of her claim. Damned if she did, screwed if she didn't. Now Isabella faced a very similar situation. Edward may have been comprehensively defeated, but he was still a king, and Isabella was an adulterous queen. She would have to tread very carefully. The first thing to do was to give her new regime a veneer of legality, and she did this by seizing the great seal of the kingdom, the literal stamp of approval that any law or royal decree needed from the sovereign. When kings went abroad on campaign, he would give this seal to the person he left in charge, be it his chief minister, or in the case of the Norman queens, his wife. Now, of course, Edward had done no such thing, but everyone just really kind of danced past that. The word was put out that he had given the seal of his own free will to Isabella and his son Edward, and for the most part, people decided to accept it, not that they for any moment believed it. The next job was to justify the overthrow. Speeches were made at an English parliament called in January 1327. In one speech, a noble thundered that the king, quote, had as good as lost the lands of Gascony and Scotland through bad counsel and bad custody, and likewise, through bad counsel, he had caused to be slain a great part of the noble blood of the land, to the dishonour and loss of himself, his realm, and the whole people. Then there came a bit of political theatre. The lords, bishops, and commons declared as one that they would rather have Prince Edward in charge, 
The 14-year-old boy, wearing a suitably meek and noble expression, according to the chroniclers, was then pushed forward to receive the acclamation of his people. Step two was to go see the king. He had been taken to Kenilworth Castle, which was owned by the Earl of Lancaster, and met the deputation of nobles, dressed all in black and clearly still in shock at being deposed. Edward had always had a favourite, someone who he felt had his back, be it Gaveston or Dispenser. Now he had no one, and quite a few historians believe that he had simply given up the ghost. It did not take long for him to surrender his throne officially, and on the 20th of January he agreed to abdicate his throne, passing it to his son. Two weeks later, his son was crowned King Edward III. England, though, would not be run by its teenage king. Formerly, the king would be run by the king's council, made up of the great and good nobles and bishops led by Lancaster, who had the formal title of Chief Guardian of the King. Yet, of course, real power rested in none of their hands. It was held by Isabella and her lover, Mortimer. So, we have a crown boy king, a council of nobles, and a partnership of two that really ran things. Somewhat convoluted, but it could work. But there was another in whom authority could be believed to reside, the old King Edward. Having the old ruler around after being deposed was unheard of. Forget English history, it's hard to think of any ruler before this time being forcibly removed from power against his will and being allowed to hang around. The only real example I can think of from our story is Robert Curthose being kept in prison by Henry I after he had removed him from his Duchy of Normandy. I guess at a pinch you could also add Eleanor of Aquitaine to that list. But neither of them were kings. None of them had that kind of royal legitimacy. Now, if Edward III had been a man in his prime, a powerful ruler, this would not be a problem. But of course he wasn't. He was a puppet, and the government was being effectively controlled not by the king or by the biggest landowners, but by a man of only moderate birth and his adulterous mistress. Isabella may have won control of England with incredible ease, but keeping hold of it was going to be far harder, and having her ex around would only make unrest and rebellion more likely. I mean, imagine leaving your husband, who is technically your boss, for another man, get your boss fired, become the boss, move your man in, but not kick your ex-husband and ex-boss to the curb. This is essentially what Isabella did, and it was as awkward as it sounds. Plots to free Edward came almost immediately, and a serious attempt to do so was foiled in early 1327, and as a reaction to all these, in April of that year, he was moved to Barclay Castle in the estuary of the River Severn near the Anglo-Welsh border, a far more remote and difficult-to-access location. He wasn't exactly kept in comfort, but he wasn't too badly mistreated initially, but it quickly became clear that his captors were hoping to accidentally on purpose have him die. As you can imagine, Edward wasn't in a very good place, and so he did what any of us would do in this situation, and that is write some emo poetry, the most notable of which is a long one that he called The Song of King Edward that he himself made. A pre-review, that is a terrible title. Like much emo poetry, it is too long to read in its entirety, though I will put a translation of it in the show notes if you want to read it all. But here are the most important bits, at least for our story. He starts off with a good woe-is-me beginning. In winter foe befell me, by cruel fortune thwarted, my life now lies a ruin. Full oft I have experienced there's none so fair, so wise, so courteous, nor so highly famed. But if fortune cease to favour, will be a fool proclaimed. He then goes on to claim that all he had ever done is love and trust his fellow man, but his fellow man apparently suck. 
Too fondly have I trusted, and honours done to many, who now seek my destruction. They love me little, pity me less. In prison they torment me, torment me I, most cruelly, even though twere well deserved. Their evil faith in Parliament from high has brought me low. Lord of salvation, I me repent. For all my sins forgiveness crave. May from the pain the flesh endureth, the soul receive both joy and mercy. This section goes on for quite a while, but the theme is pretty much the same. Then, though, he moves on to blame the person whose betrayal hurt the most, Isabella. They've dealt to me a joyless game, and mid such grief my heart complains, of her whom fondly I believed a faithful wife turned to deceit. Fair Isabel I dearly love, but now love's spark is dead, and with my love my joy is gone, and tis from many a heart. He then goes on to talk about his son Edward. Upon the youngest in stately pomp a crown of gold they've placed. Keep him, Jesu, the son of Mary, from traitors whom God confound. May God confound his enemies, and make of him a monarch wise, endowed both with might and will, fair fame to uphold and chivalry, and let them all be brought to shame who seek to harm or injure him. He then finally turns to God and asks for the forgiveness of his sins. Of what sins, though, he does not say. Both wise and fool I would entreat, make prayers for me, ye all, to Mary, the mother of all merciful, who bore the almighty Lord, that through the joy she had of him, she may her son beseech, for all my sins and treacherous deeds, to grant me mercy yet. Unfortunately, while he had been a pretty crappy king, and an even worse poet, he was a fairly healthy guy, and refused to get sick, and, being 43, there was no guarantee that age would take him any time soon, even with all his emo poetry. In July, there was another attempt to free him, which actually succeeded in getting him out of his cell, but never made it out of the castle. And by the time a third plot had been foiled in September, everyone's patience was wearing thin. Something had to be done, and given the tone of the times, there was only going to be one outcome. The endless cycle of violence was to claim another victim, this time the former king. Now, shockingly, nobody kept detailed notes about the death of Edward given the murky circumstances that surrounded it, so I will first say what we know for absolute sure. On the night of the 21st September 1327, it was reported that the king had died. No real details, just that he was dead. His body was taken to the Abbey of St Peter in Gloucester, where it lay in state. His coffin was draped in the royal standard, and he was given a state funeral, attended by all the great and good, including Isabella, the boy King Edward, and Mortimer. Now, of course, into this vacuum of details swarmed all manner of rumours and conjecture. The most popular stories amongst chroniclers was that the king had been murdered with, gross death alert, a red-hot poker shoved into his backside, which burned his insides, while externally leaving no mark. Apparently, I think the chroniclers have a very poor notion of anatomy. This theory had the advantage of A, being sensational, and B, a lovely little tying of the bow on the accusation of homosexuality on the part of the king, for reasons that I imagine are obvious to you. Other theories have him dying in less gruesome ways, some even believe the official account of a normal death, others state that he had not been killed at all, but had been secretly moved to another location, or even that he had escaped and was now living abroad under an assumed identity. This latter was a popular theory about kings and emperors that had been deposed, the most popular of which had him escaping to Italy and living there until he died. 
though it seems strange to me that he would not make an attempt to regain his throne, as James the Seventh and Second and his sons would do in the Jacobite rebellions of the 17th and 18th centuries. The question that is most pertinent to us, I guess, is this. Did Isabella have her husband killed? The simple answer, of course, is that we don't know. The historian in me says that it doesn't really matter. All that matters is what people perceived. The storyteller in me, though, is encouraged to engage in a little bit of conjecture. Now, killing her husband was an extreme move, and unprecedented. Royal blood was seen as being sacred, and she had more than a normal appreciation for royal blood, as I have said many times. It was also highly risky, and while Isabella was not averse to a bit of gambling, she wasn't in a position where she needed to do so. Before, she had been desperate and on the back foot. Now she was in charge. She had no real need to throw the dice on a scheme like this. But then again, she had made reckless moves before. She did not need to shack up with Mortimer sexually as well as politically, but she had. She did not need to have the two dispensers so gruesomely killed, but she had done that as well. It is not implausible to me that if Edward did indeed die in that cell in 1327, it was on her orders, or at least with her consent. But of course, we will never know for sure. But, like I said, what is really important is what people thought had happened, and it is clear that a lot thought something distinctly fishy had gone on. Now, at this point, a lot of people like to make some sort of prophetic comment about how the death of Edward made Isabella and Mortimer's downfall inevitable. But this is far from the truth. Edward II had not been a popular king. His toppling had been achieved with barely any fuss. The people may mutter about his death, but for them to pick up swords and risk death, they would need a cause that they actually cared a lot more about. Now, a question that is debated a lot for this period in history is this. Who was really in charge? Mortimer or Isabella? Legally speaking, decrees were made in the name of Edward and Isabella, but many since then have argued that the notion of a woman wielding that degree of influence is a little far-fetched, and that it was Mortimer that really steered the ship of state. But I don't really agree with this version of events. Mortimer was the muscle, the military shadow that helped win and then secure the kingdom for the new regime, but you needed far more than that to rule legitimately. Put simply, Mortimer was not very noble and certainly not royal, Isabella was very royal and had all the connections, so despite her being female, which was seen as being a disadvantage back then, I think she was actually in a stronger position to wield authority than Mortimer, especially given the fact that her son Edward loathed his mother's lover, while he still held great affection for Isabella. Yet of course, Isabella and Mortimer's regime was to be short-lived. What really hurt Isabella now was in fact herself. Isabella was the royalist of royals and was now a queen, a queen mother, and a regent. That was quite a position of status, and she believed that she needed the wealth that went along with that status. The dispenser government had deprived her of all her lands as a mean of attempting to suffocate her finances, and now she wanted those lands back. And more, and then more, and then... you get the picture. Helen Castor in She Wolves calls Isabella entitled, and I think that's a pretty apt description. First, Isabella took back the dower lands that were once hers, worth around £4,500 a year. That was right and proper, but then, on her son's coronation, she tripled her land holdings, taking lands from the king's possession and from vanquished foes. Eventually, she was taking in almost £14,000 a year, a huge sum, making her richer than either Thomas Lancaster or Dispenser had been in their pomp. She was in many ways repeating the tactics of Dispenser, 
control the king, and enrich herself to gain the maximum power. Mortimer followed her in this land grab, taking lots of land in the west and even more in Ireland, creating himself the title of Earl of the March. Remember that the principal measure of power and wealth in the Middle Ages was in land, not hard cash, and Isabella was taking this to its logical end. Gain as much land as you could, and eventually you would hold all the power. Right? The very same people who mustered about the land-grabbing of Dispenser started to say the same things about Isabella and Mortimer. Who did this woman think she was? Yet, of course, she needed that land. Like I said, land equals money equals power, and she needed it to rule. It's no different to what any other region before or since did. Isabella was not unusual in this. She did not, though, forget to reward her supporters, especially the all-important Lancastrians. Lands taken from them by the dispensers were returned for the most part, and they were financially compensated. But of course, no one ever believes that they have been compensated enough. The next nail in the coffin of her regime was, I think, more unfair to Isabella. Her seeking of peace with England's enemies. The requirement to pay off the debts that she had accrued gathering together her invasion army had cleared the little nest egg that dispenser had left in the treasury. But England was still at war with Scotland, and the peace with France over Gascony had never really been properly secured. Those wars had gone disastrously wrong under Edward II, and with the need to secure her own position and that of her son, Isabella was in no mood to continue either conflict. New king, new slate. Plus, there was no money to properly prosecute these wars. England had to choose her battles more wisely, and so Isabella elected to make peace with the Scots. Robert Bruce had run rings around Edward II, but he was reaching the end of his life and wanted to secure some sort of lasting peace to secure the final independence of his kingdom. The whole Anglo-Scottish conflict started under the reign of Edward I, and it was predicated upon the disputed notion that the King of England was the High King over all the island of Britain, and that the King of Scots was subordinate to him. Bruce wanted that notion entirely dispelled, and it was for that, along with more base reasons of power, that he had fought for the last three decades. He continued to launch raids into England through 1327, which led to the young king leading an expedition up north, but he had little more success than his father had. The Scots army was just far better motivated and trained than that of England at this time, and they came within a whisker of capturing Edward during one raid. This all persuaded Isabella that peace was the only course. Bruce, though, had won the war, and was not interested in letting England off easy. He had some serious demands. First, the recognition of him as King of Scots, and the independence of that ground from that of the English monarchy. Second, no Englishman would be allowed to hold lands in Scotland. Third, a marriage alliance between Joan, Isabella's daughter, and his three-year-old son and heir, David. And fourth, a defensive alliance whereby England would send troops to defend Scotland should it be attacked. In return, he offered financial compensation of £20,000 and the offer of Scottish aid in any English war, except against France, who was Scotland's great ally. Now, these were not acceptable to the English nobility. England was not pushed around by their noisy neighbour to the north. Who did they think they were? The Lancastrian faction in particular let it be known that they completely opposed peace on these terms, and so the negotiation went on for several months. Eventually, though, a deal was struck, and Robert Bruce got every demand in the Treaty of Northampton, which was signed in May 1328. This deal was immediately slammed by nigh on everyone as being a terrible deal. It was called a, quote, shameful peace, where Edward III was... 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quote, fraudulently disinherited of Scotland through the, quote, false council of traitors. The king himself was upset at having been forced to give away his birthright of Scotland and the selling of his sister to his chief enemy. Lancaster and the council were furious that they had not been really consulted, and of course the English nobles, who had had their lands in Scotland taken from them, were apoplectic. I cannot emphasise enough how unpopular the Treaty of Northampton was with literally everyone from the king down. But... I think that the deal that Isabella and Mortimer struck was not a bad one given the circumstances. Their bargaining position, quite frankly, sucked, and I think a lot of people were looking at Scotland with Edward I's tinted spectacles. The days of the Scots being hammered was long gone, and this was the only deal on the table. Now, part of the reason that this peace was made was so that Isabella could focus on getting England a far greater prize than the Scottish throne, the French throne. Isabella, of course, was the sister of the French King Charles IV, who on his death had a daughter and no other children, and since women were forbidden from inheriting anything in France, thanks to the Salic Law, there was a dispute over who the next male heir would be. Formal rules and laws of inheritance had not yet been written, and so this was a complicated legal mess. The front-runner was Charles's cousin, Philip of Valois, but his family was not especially noble or powerful, but he was the next nearest male through the male line. Isabella, on the other hand, argued that while, of course, she was not eligible to gain the throne, that did not mean that she should be skipped altogether, instead that the claim should pass through her to her son Edward. Both claims were very persuasive in law, and there was no real right answer. Isabella, though, was determined for her son to inherit the throne of the kingdom of her birth, and had him write to the Pope to argue his case. She also sent allies like Bishop Orleton and Northborough who argued her case formally to the French court. But her case was somewhat hampered by perceptions of Isabella's character and that of Edward's age. Could the French crown, one of the jewels of European royalty, be allowed to fall into the hands of an English teenage son of an adulterous kingslayer? Philip may not have had the noble pedigree of Edward, but he was 35, well-known and liked, and had plenty of experience in affairs of state. This argument prevailed, and so in May 1328, Philip of Valois was crowned King of France, 
the first in a dynasty that would rule the kingdom for the next 250 years. This conflict between England and the House of Valois would of course lead to the outbreak of the Hundred Years' War ten years later, but more on that next time. Isabella was furious, and immediately set about preparing for war. She had put all of her eggs in this particular basket and thrown away considerable political capital. She could not get her son the throne legally, she would do it by force. The problem was that she did not have the allies to do it thanks to the so-so placing of eggs, and so the preparations went nowhere. Isabella and Lancaster, having fallen out over the Treaty of Northampton, began a bitter struggle for control of Edward and his government. They were both hugely rich and powerful, and so they had to be quite careful about what they did. Isabella made the first move and started to edge Lancastrian nobles from court and use the tremendous power of patronage that came with being a queen mother and regent to court people away from Lancaster. The key battleground, though, was the king. Just as Isabella and Despenser had fought it out for control over Edward II, now Edward III was the prize. To stay in power, she needed more wealth, more influence and more clients in powerful places who owed their position to her. She also was not above a little cheap embezzlement. As part of the Treaty of Northampton, if you recall, Bruce sent some money back as compensation. Much of it ended up in Isabella's purse and not the Exchequer. She also bigged up the power of Mortimer, but if she was unpopular, then it was nothing compared to Mortimer. Basically, he was as disliked as Isabella, but had none of the royal blood to mitigate. Being a man of only moderate rank before his rise to power, it was especially galling to see him riding alongside the king rather than respectively behind. He also sat in the presence of the king rather than standing. Who did he think he was? He was thinking himself as being at best a pushy stepfather and at worst a quasi-king. None of this was endearing the regime to the nobles and the people. Now, this was not to say that Isabella's control of government was some Cersei Lannister-style disaster fest, with every move only designed to secure her in power. She did make some good moves to reform the legal system that had basically collapsed under Edward II. Under her stewardship, the access to royal pardons was reduced, accused would not be allowed to bring armed followers to court, and royal officials were reminded aggressively of the need to be impartial and of their subordination to justices of the peace. These legal reforms, or perhaps they really should be called legal repairs, are some of Isabella's greatest achievements and were a great help to her son once he took the throne for himself. In September 1328, Lancaster decided to make a show of force. He gathered a small army and brought them to court. Not to launch a coup or kill anyone, just as a show of force to prove that he was not a man to be alienated. Isabella was quite understandably shaken by this and quickly moved to ban the assembly of armed men, but the cat was really out of the bag now. Both Isabella and Lancaster then went to openly court the people of London. While not quite as influential as it would be in the coming centuries, London was still a vitally important place to hold, and was notoriously fickle when it came to choosing sides, a lesson Empress Matilda found out to her cost, if you recall. The Londoners backed Lancaster, and they called for Isabella to act more like a queen and less like a sort of Roman emperor. She must surrender her wealth and move to the sidelines, as was her place. They also called for Mortimer to be banished as a poisonous influence. Anyone feeling some deja vu here yet? Mortimer was not the evil genius that Dispenser was, but history was indeed yet again repeating itself. 
Emboldened by this endorsement, Lancaster then went and made an attempt to capture the king while he was away from his mother's clutches, but Edward escaped and made it back to his mother's embrace. Lancaster's men were becoming a sort of mobile hit squad, even going as far as murdering Isabella's supporters, and with Lancaster's army and wealth, there was little Isabella could do about it. A parliament was called in late 1328, but Lancaster refused to attend it, claiming that if he did, he would be murdered by Mortimer. Now, this was mirroring Isabella's refusal to return to England for fear of dispenser, and the similarities go on, with proclamations made by Mortimer very similar to the ones released by Edward, claiming that he did not and never had meant to do him any harm. This argument, though, was somewhat undermined by the fact that Mortimer then went and attacked Lancaster's lands, while the Earl himself was occupying Winchester. It was civil war again, with Lancaster along with the Earls of Kent and Norfolk in support. Mortimer's forces sacked Leicester, a key stronghold, and he, along with the King and Isabella, set about raising an army. Once again, the King of England was having to take down a Lancaster. Spoiler alert, it would be very far from the last time this would happen. But Lancaster had underestimated Mortimer and Isabella. Not for nothing had they managed to pose the former king with consummate ease. Lancaster's supporters began to desert him in droves, and he was forced to capitulate. He formally submitted at Bedford, swearing an oath to never again harm, quote, Our lord the king, my ladies the queens, nor any great or small of the council. By the queens, he is referring both to Isabella and Edward III's wife Philippa, who for the sake of concision I have not talked about yet, but fear not, she has her own episode next time. Now, I imagine you're expecting some gruesome death for Lancaster, but no. His life was spared, though he was forced to pay a crippling fine and was deprived of almost all his titles. He survived, but would no longer be a threat to the regime. But this would prove to be an exception that proves the rule. Isabella and Mortimer were now stronger than they had ever been, just like Edward had been after the Dispenser War. Did they learn the lessons of Edward? Pfft, don't be silly. The speed of Lancaster's rebellion scared them really more than it should have, and so the regime devolved into a tyrannical web of suspicion and reprisal. And of course, nothing makes rebellion more likely than a reign of terror based around a fear of rebellion. And the figurehead this time would be the Earl of Kent. Now, if you recall, Kent, a son of Edward I and Margaret of France, had been one of Isabella's chief backers in her invasion in 1326. He had grown quickly disaffected. He had been an early supporter of Lancaster, before realising that discretion was the better part of valour and scarpering, but now extraordinary news reached his ears. King Edward II was alive and well. Rumours had been circling, and continued to do so, that Edward had in fact been secretly moved to Corfe Castle in Dorset. Where had these rumours come from? Why, they had come from Isabella and Mortimer. Yes, the regents of England had seen Kent as a potential threat and had laid a honey trap for him, and he had fallen for it, hook, line, and sinker. He was arrested, and in March 1330, he was brought before Parliament, and this time there would be no mercy. He was to be executed. But there was a problem. Kent was the son of a king and queen, an uncle of Edward III. No one wanted to spill royal blood. Remember how Isabella had once been horrified at any spilling of royal blood? How things change. Kent was forced to stand in the pouring rain for hours while they scratched around trying to find anyone to do the deed. Eventually, a felon condemned to death agreed to do it in return for a pardon. 
The crowd was not impressed. No one was. This again should have been a warning to Mortimer and Isabella that they were going too far. But no, to mix some metaphors, they were stuck in their bunker and could not see where this road was taking them. The spilling of royal blood had been the straw that broke the back of Edward II's regime, and so it would be for Mortimer and Isabella's. There is also suspicion that around this time Isabella was pregnant and then miscarried a child with Mortimer. Now, I'm not a huge fan of this story for a few reasons. One, there is precious little evidence for it. Two, it's a little bit too sensational to be true. And three, if it was true, there would be a whole lot more evidence. But anyway, there were suspicions, and some, including Alison Weir, claimed that it was this that finally turned Edward III against his mother. Edward and his wife Philippa had just welcomed a son who was named, helpfully, Edward, though history would remember him as the Black Prince. A child of Mortimer and Isabella would be a huge obstacle for any child of Edward gaining the throne. He was also getting a little bit tired of being sidelined. He wasn't a little kid anymore. He was 18 years old. It was time to win control of the throne on which he sat. In October 1330, Mortimer, Isabella and Edward were in Nottingham Castle, a fortress seized from the Earl of Kent after his execution, his lands having all been parcelled out to Mortimer's favourites, of course. Mortimer and Isabella suspected that members of Edward's household were plotting against him. But, of course they weren't, they were plotting against them. They suspected them all, but eventually let them go, though not before banishing them from the castle. However, they knew a secret passageway into the castle, as any good mates of the king should, and, led by the king's best friend William Montague, they made their way in the pitch-black dead of night into the said secret passageway, which led them past all the security into the heart of the castle. They then linked up with Edward, and together they stormed Isabella and Mortimer's bedroom. They disarmed them both, and Mortimer was arrested. The regime of Isabella and Mortimer was over. For Mortimer, again, no mercy. The cycle of violence rolled on. Blamed for the murder of his father and the usurpation of the crown, he was strung up from the gallows like a common thief. This Isabella miniseries really has had a nice range of executions, come to think of it. But what about Isabella? Well, Edward had no intention of hurting her, but she was far too dangerous a person to just let loose immediately. She was kept under guard for a few weeks, and then brought to Windsor Castle, but not given leave to, well, leave. It was a form of five-star house arrest that lasted for a couple of years, whereupon she was finally allowed to move around freely. She would spend most of the rest of her life at Castle Rising in Yorkshire, though she did from time to time still engage in affairs of state. This is, of course, quite different from Henry II's treatment of Eleanor of Aquitaine, who was kept in a gilded cage until her husband's death. Edward even allowed his mother from time to time to engage in diplomatic business, most notably after the Battle of Poitiers. One of the greatest English victories in the Hundred Years' War, Poitiers saw the capture of the French King John, and Isabella, of course a French royalty herself, being John's second cousin, played host to members of the French King's entourage during their quote-unquote imprisonment in England. She became good friends too with her daughter-in-law Philippa, often spending time together while Edward was off campaigning. So, how else did she occupy herself during her retirement? Well, she did a lot of hunting, hawking, reading romances, and of course, entertaining. She was, by all accounts, quite the convivial hostess, and her eventful life, I imagine, meant that she had quite a few stories to tell. As she entered her 60s, though, she began to concern herself more and more with her immortal soul. She had always given money to the church and engaged in a little religious patronage, 
but no more than was expected of her, and of course a lot of it was for political profit. Now though, she started to give more liberally, especially to the Franciscan order. She gave alms to the poor on religious holidays, and generally started to behave a lot more like a normal dowager queen would. On the 22nd of August, 1358, Isabella died, after apparently overdosing on some medicine that she was taking for some undisclosed condition. She left most of her possessions to her grandson Edward, whom she had grown very fond of, including Castle Rising, and most of her personal effects. Her body was taken to Hartford Castle and wrapped in her wedding cloak. There she lay in state for three months before being brought to London. Her son Edward spared no expense for his mother's funeral. The city was swept clean of dirt, and on the 27th of November, Isabella's coffin was brought in a great procession through the city to the Franciscan Church of Newgate, the same resting place as Mortimer and her stepmother-in-law, Margaret of France, where the ceremony was conducted by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Her body was buried at Newgate, while her heart was taken to Castle Rising. One of her last requests was to be buried with her husband's heart, a sign that in her old age she had warmed to her dead husband. So, after three episodes, how do we sum up Isabella? Well, she was one of the prime shapers of an incredibly acrimonious and violent time. I have mentioned again and again the cycle of violence that all started with the murder of Piers Gaveston and only ended with the execution of Mortimer. Now, she cannot really be entirely blamed for it, she only really joined in when it was in its full swing, but she certainly did nothing to arrest it. Her reputation after her death took a nosedive, especially after being attacked frequently in poetry and on the stage. Her portrayal in Christopher Marlowe's Edward II was far from positive, but her greatest attacker was the 18th century poet Thomas Gray, who, writing during the Seven Years' War, was not in a mood to praise a Frenchwoman. In a poem called The Bard, a Pindaric Ode, the full text of which you can find in the show notes, he blames her for the murder of Edward II. Weave the warp and weave the woof, the winding sheet of Edward's race. Give ample room and verge enough, the characters of hell to trace. Mark the year and mark the night, when seven shall re-echo with affright. The shrieks of death through Barclay's roofs that ring, shrieks of an agonising king. She-wolf of France, with unrelenting fangs, that attest the bowels of thy mangled mate. From thee be born, who o'er thy country hangs, the scourge of heaven, what terrors around him wait. Amazement in his van, with flight combined, and sorrow's faded form, and solitude behind. The name She-wolf of France, which was actually stolen from Shakespeare, who used it to describe Margaret of Anjou in Henry VI, stuck and later historians have used it to describe her. Yet this rather moralising and negative description is hardly worthy of such an extraordinary woman. She took extreme measures, but these were extreme times. Had she not been there, England would still have dissolved into violence. The incompetent and corrupt rule of Edward II and Dispenser made that certain. But her intervention ensured that her son Edward III would gain the throne, even if he had to overthrow her to make it his alone. She has no equal as a Queen Consort of England. She broke every rule and even lived to tell the tale. She was Eleanor of Aquitaine mixed with Anne Boleyn on steroids, and she shaped the course of England for years to come. For her attempt to secure the French crown for her son would eventually lead to the most famous conflict in English medieval history, the Hundred Years' War. Next time, we look at the reign of the wife of Edward III, Philippa of Hainaut. 
a woman who was pretty much as different from her predecessor as it is possible to be. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 